podcast. I'm your host, Mr. EJ Gullett, and alongside me, as always, Mr. Jay Kington. Hola, senor. Hola, senor. How are you? Como estas? Holding, uh, holding up, hanging in. A little hungover from my birthday festivities yesterday, uh, but started drinking again just all for you, buddy. Oh, thank you, sir. I appreciate you, and happy belated uh, again, to you, what'd Thank you do you last so night? For those kind words. Uh, you know, I'm I'm a kind guy. What'd you What'd you get into last night? Uh, we went. We tried to go to Hibachi. I wanted Quinn to see live Hibachi for the first time. Just see him freak out. They were uh, so poorly managed that even our reservation had an hour long wait. So we left, went to one of the sushi spots I like, and then had a bunch of uh, you know sushi, a bunch of apps, and uh, a whole bunch of drinks, and then. I don't know. Came home and just kept drinking, and then uh, woke up. Woke up still violently drunk. Were you? Did you take the day off today? Yes, I did. As well, you should have. Well, that's awesome, man. I'm sucks. Q couldn't see a a good old fashioned hibachi grill and and experience his first onion volcano, but exactly. Well, well, I'll take them there sometime soon. It's okay. Yeah, it's the uh, the maybe the lunch rush will be will be less hectic. Uh, I imagine so, but honestly, with everyone out of work right now, I don't know, man. It's a gamble. That is true. That is true. It is a gamble. Uh, but Jay, please, before we get started and everything, uh, we're going to talk about uh, some movies we're watching and some news, but uh, kick us off with some some stuff that you're watching right now while kicking it at home. Yeah, so uh, stuff I've been watching or have watched recently. I'm going to start with it. I was just telling you, you have to watch this pre-recording as you're just kind of shooting the shit but uh the vast of night on amazon prime everyone go check out that movie an amazing 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 movie low budget but shot and and made in such a brilliant way uh it's in the kind of alien genre i would say um but just so, so good. Gives you a really great nostalgia feel, kind of similar to like what Stranger Things does, except this is set in the 1950s in a small town in New Mexico. So great, especially if you're into aliens. If not, just go watch it. Not not scary or anything. So, you know, if you if you're, don't like scary movies, don't worry. It's just a really cool movie um, about some strange occurrences. Uh, one night in, uh, in a small New New Mexico town. Uh, outside of that, started watching a little bit of Room uh, 104, which is an anthology series on HBO. was watching that a bit today. Um, I have some episodes that are going to be recording. Uh, I think some are actually recording now that, that um, were a bit more on the, the scary side. The show's kind of hit or miss. Like it's, It could be like a joyous story, just a weird, strange story, or it could be like kind of scary horror. Um, outside of that, I've been watching a ton of the MLS is back tournament, the MLS soccer tournament. Um, you know, as I have another podcast around David Beckham's inner Miami team. Um, I watched a bit of the old guard, the new Charlize Theron movie on Netflix. Not really my cup of tea. Pretty strange. Uh, some people love it though. Um, outside of that, uh, watch fantasy Island remake of the old classic show. Kind of 
stupid but entertaining to say the least um so i mean definitely not not a waste of time just kind of interesting movie uh and then chloe's been watching the handmaid's tale so i've been watching a bit of that with her which is uh another interesting show women love it um pretty good some some stuff's just just weird for me but uh yeah that's basically it i've watched some other stuff but my brain's not really functioning at the the normal pace it does so forgive me this week ej what are you watching bud Oh man, it's fine. I've been told to watch many times The Handmaid's Tale, but I have tried it and it's it's um, a little too dark of a dystopian. But I got told today uh, by by my girlfriend Kate, I got told that to watch um, Brave New World, which is on Peacock, which just uh, their new it's NBC's new streaming yeah. service they just dropped. Um, but Brave New World is apparently like a really cool dystopian future. Uh, same type of style as Handmaid's Tale, but a little bit lighter. Um, I guess in terms of what I've heard, like a little bit happier of a tone versus Handmaid's Tale, which is really dark. So I think I'm going to check that out this week. Uh, other than that, still watching The Sopranos uh, again, off and on. Like haven't watched any this week, but um, I'm deep into season three, loving it still. Uh, before bed every night, man, got to watch. I've been watching Star Wars Rebels, loving it. Uh, is that the, the little animated series. Yes, yeah, they okay. have uh, they have quite a few actually. I mean, there's a lot, but there was the Clone Wars, and that really kicked it off. And they just finished off theirs, which I finished and was fantastic. And then Rebels falls in between three and four uh, episodes, three and four, so uh, really good. And then there's uh, there's another one um, that falls in between six and seven that I'll probably check out after this because I can eat up Star Wars all day and love it. Uh, Kate's birthday was last week, so we she wanted to watch uh, West Side Story, so we we checked that one out. The the nineteen, I think it's the sixty one version. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, fantastic I that. movie. I've, I've seen movie. that in like the, the I've watched that sometime within like the past three months. I just got sucked into it. <laughs> it's so good. I mean, it really is. It's it's that musical is fantastic. Uh, I can't wait to see what they do with the remake. Uh, if you if you're not aware, Steven Spielberg is remaking this movie, uh, and it stars Ansel Elsgort, Elsgort, uh, and uh, I, I forget who the female lead is uh, right now that they've got. So I'm interested to see what they do with that West Side Story, and then also Broadway. Uh, it's I mean obviously Broadway shut down for the rest of the year, but Broadway has a uh, West Side Story retelling as well, which is a little bit more modernized. And honestly, I want to see it. So uh, I want to see that. Uh, other than that, I watched the classic Parent Trap this week. And it still is fine and holds up. And I loved it. I mean, there was definitely major plot points. That I was like, wow, all of this could have been easily avoided. But love the movie still. Uh, and then I got stuck into a uh, Christopher Nolan vibe this week and watched both Dunkirk and Interstellar this week. Um, I'm still trying to decide, decide if I like Interstellar more than Dunkirk, but I think I'm biased because I love war movies so much. Uh, they're both good movies, so you can't really go wrong. No, you cannot. I mean, it's it's two vastly different movies. It's just Christopher Nolan is a magical, magical filmmaker, and I absolutely love every single movie he does. Cannot wait to see Tenet. Uh, and then tonight or tomorrow night, depending on if you make me watch In the Vast of Night, uh, I'm watching Father of the Bride because... Why the fuck not? No, why not? 
<laughs> that's, uh, that's another great movie. I mean, you can't go wrong with that, you know. Uh, ben, God, I don't know how many years, a ton of them. I don't even want to date myself. Last time I, I watched Father of the Bride. Um, but uh, let's keep it rolling on here. So we do have some movie news that I know you wanted to share, specifically uh, the sad part of, well, not the, well, one of the sad parts of COVID-19, not the most sad by any means. I mean, but, look, um, you've got you've got movies being canceled and then you've got people dying. Well, let's be honest here. Okay. It's it's more important. No, I kid. I, I seriously, this is a serious situation. But yes, there's a lot of movies that have been delayed, pushed back. Schedules have been changed. Uh, movie studios have been pushing back all of their big movies. So once this whole thing's over with, we're going to have a lot of reasons to go to the movies, and I can't wait. But uh, I broke this down by studio. So WB, and I'll go through these quickly. WB, as I said earlier, Tenet didn't, delayed indefinitely. That was uh, Christopher Nolan's big summer blockbuster. It's what a lot of movie studios have been holding off on to kind of wait and see uh, how it does because Nolan is a big advocate for the movie theaters. Um, so he really believes that this movie and every movie that he does or all movies should be shown in the movie theater first. Um, so, you know, he's uh, tenant supposed to come out. Also, there's a lot of speculation around there because that it was coming out right around the 10th anniversary of Inception that this is uh, a sequel to Inception, just not well known yet. Uh, so mm-hmm. I kind of believe that theory, actually. And I think actually Leonardo DiCaprio is in the film. Um, just based off of some stuff that I've read, but I'm excited to see that movie. Hella excited to see that movie. Can't wait. Uh, Wonder Woman 1984 still set for October 2nd, 2020. Godzilla versus Kong. That's uh, been pushed to May 21st, 2021. The Witches come. It was originally coming out in October this year. That was moved to 2021 with no official re- re- release date. Wow. Excuse me. Uh, and Matrix Four has been pushed to April 1st, 2022. Was originally set to come out. I think April or maybe May next year. So that's been pushed a whole year. Uh, With Disney, Mulan has been delayed indefinitely. So just kiss that goodbye unless they just decide to to release that on Disney+. Plus. But I was kind of amped to see that and see how they did with that one. Um, Avatar 2, 3, 4, and 5 have all been pushed. Why do they even have so many avatars? Because it's one of the most successful financially successful movies of all time it is the most financially successful like i'm assuming they already have the storylines plotted well i mean james cameron basically filmed them all at the same time so he's been working on these for i mean when did avatar come out 2013 or it might it might even been earlier than that wow Uh, he's already filmed four additional sequels yeah Dude, that's crazy that they're gonna leave them like that far back. Like we don't even know what the technological advances will be like for new movies and CGI in twenty twenty eight. That's crazy. But I mean, when you look back at Avatar now, I mean, I just watched Avatar a few months ago, and I was like, dude, this movie still looks so goddamn fantastic. Like even then, like I think that this, I think the rest of his movies are just gonna blow us away. Uh, but those have been pushed back. All in December 2022, 2024, 2026, and 2028. Um, so, can't wait. Uh, Untitled Star Wars Trilogy. Yes, there are more coming. Uh, those have been pushed back to December 2023, 2025, and 2027. Uh, Your Love, Jay, Antlers, uh, unfortunately, has been pushed back to February 19th, 2021. Although I think it would make more sense if they would just release that on digital release now because 
people are dying for a movie. I agree. Uh, Wes Anderson's film, The French Dispatch, has uh, delayed indefinitely as well. I was looking forward to that one, but we'll wait a little bit longer. Uh, a big one, Quiet Place 2, pushed back to April 23rd, 2021. So I have to wait a whole another year for that shit, and I was hoping to see that in the fall at least. Uh, Top Gun Maverick, whatever, pushed, pushed to uh, 2021 sometime. They don't know yet. Uh, and old news, but Sony has delayed pretty much their entire slate up to 2021. Uh, that includes Ghostbusters Afterlife, Uncharted. Uh, the only one that's not delayed is the Kevin Hart drama, which is, I'm forgetting the name of it now. It's Fatherhood, I think, or something like that. But that is coming out this year sometime. So cool. We got that to look forward to. Yeah. Yeah, baby. But that is all the movie news I could find. I guess also I forgot to look at Lionsgate, but I'm sure John Wick uh, 4. Yeah, John Wick 4, I'm sure that's been pushed. And then Knives Out 2, I'm sure that's going to push stuff. Uh, and then I'm sure Antebellum is being pushed again. And I'm sure whatever else they got on the pipeline is being pushed again. But Lionsgate's Lionsgate, and they'll do their own thing. Uh, but the real reason we're here tonight, we're here to talk about uh, a movie that I should have watched in 2019 in the movie theaters because it was fucking amazing. But we're here to talk about Ford versus Ferrari. Got a rooster in my Rari. <laughs> yes, we're here to talk about who sings that song. I don't even. Um, I'm gonna I go ahead and say. Fe- I want to say Fetty Wap. I want to say Fetty Wap. Yeah, probably, probably Fetty Wap. You're looking it up. Please tell me. Oh, of course not. If I walk a flock of fine. Oh God. Oh yeah, Rooster in my Rari. Rooster in my. I forgot about that song. What an oldie to pull up there, Jay. That's that's yeah, uh, yeah. that's 2000. What 12? Somewhere around there. Yeah. It's, uh, it's a uh, while, but yeah, no, I agree. Great, 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 great movie. Great story. America, baby. I welcome. I did not know anything about this story. Actually, like I literally anything about this story to be honest and i learned a lot yeah yeah i knew a little bit about it but not you know nearly as much as uh you know after watching the film but uh you know really cool cool thing that happened in the 60s for uh for ford and and for america in general but um you know it was uh released by 20th century fox and was directed by james mangold uh has a pretty solid cast in here you had matt damon as carol shelby uh such an American icon. If you're into cars, you know that name. Uh, you know, you know the, the Shelby. You know the Shelby Cobra. You, well, yeah. So you know the Ford partnerships. You know, like the, the also the the the, um, the Shelby car they make themselves. Um, yeah, the Shelby American car. The Shelby yeah, Cobra. Yeah. The, the, it's the Shelby Cobra, and he has. Uh, I mean, basically, when he created Shelby American, he uh, created a ton of different uh, parts from. Uh, he put Ford engines in European cars and made them fucking amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but like the, the classic, just like 60, 65 Shelby Cobra is just such a, a beautiful looking car. Ironically, my father is actually interested in potentially trading his Porsche uh, for one with a guy he met like at some car show. Wow, really? Super cool. Yeah, yeah. But then they also have like their whole, um, you know, Ford Shelby line as well. Um, but, you know, the great, great Matt Damon, uh, you got Christian <laughs> Bale, who I love, who was able to just let his English accent rock out finally, something he rarely does. And also, just again, drop another 
fifty pounds right after Vice into this movie. Kind of, I mean, just a incredible. Yeah, actor. I mean, he, he's a method actor, but he plays Ken Miles, who is the driver in this movie. Um, you got John Bernthal, who plays Lee Icoca, who I'm, if I'm correct, I believe there is a racetrack named after Icoca now. Uh, Leo Bisbee is played by Josh Lucas, and then Henry Ford the second is played by Tracy Letts. And there's some, obviously several more actors in this movie, but these are the, uh, the ones that are, are the most important and, and that I think most people will, will recognize. The other thing I liked is the, uh, like the head pit guy. I can't think of his name right now, but he was, um, he was in Sons of Anarchy and Mayans. He was Lincoln, um, the uh, federal agent in that one, but uh, he's an, he's another great actor, but uh, you know, pretty, pretty uh, smash up job on the casting. And um you know, I know you've done quite a bit of uh, of research on on the first kind of half of this story. So I guess without further ado, let's just get into this story. Um, I guess I'll, I'll do a quick overview before you do go into. It. So this is basically um, there was a time where Ford was losing so much money, uh, their futures were in doubt. They had like they were involved with stock car racing, so NASCAR racing. Um, but they weren't involved with like any like the European um, or, you know, some of the major races um, outside of, 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 of stock car racing. So uh, in the 60s, there was, you know, we're going to go through this whole story, but basically Ford was trying to be able to, to dethrone Ferrari from the Le Mans 24 hour race. Right. And Ferrari had won it like the previous three or four years or something like that. And was a, a contender. Enzo Ferrari. Um, you know, is, is, is also portrayed in this movie, the, the founder of Ferrari. Uh, it's just this really cool kind of um, race. Uh, that's not the best word for a movie about racing, but a kind of race <laughs> between the two companies um, to make the best sports car. And, um, you know, in, in there was three years uh, in the 60s that uh, Ford actually won and uh, was able to have the, uh, the winner of the, the Le Mans 24. So uh, this is the story of kind of, um, you know, the engineering, the test uh, getting all the personnel that you need to achieve such an, an amazing feat in a pretty short amount of time. And um, this is really, I think, when the GT40 became a prominent uh, vehicle. Um, but uh, yeah, let's just go ahead and get into it, buddy. Take us away. Not just a prominent vehicle. It, it became the vehicle. Uh, it, was, it was built because of this. Um, but yeah, but as Jay was saying, we're going to be covering you know, a little bit more in depth of the actual story that was portrayed in uh, Ford versus Ferrari. Some of the things they got wrong, uh, not wrong, but that they told differently, probably due to, uh, um, I don't know, timing uh, than they needed to get right. But, you know, for the movie itself, they did a pretty damn fantastic job of of uh, really covering these historic events. And, and I, I thought they did a really great job. Um, but we're going to be covering tonight, at least from 1963 up to 1965. Uh, but really starting out in 1963, Henry Ford II, uh, he attempted to acquire Ferrari, uh, which is literally, you know, close to the beginning of the film here, uh, sparking a nearly decade-long feud between him and owner Enzo Ferrari, which is, I just, I, I can't say that name enough. I love the name Enzo Ferrari. I think it's- Yeah, so Italians got some, got some pretty cool names. Yeah, they really do, man. They really do. But look, let's go back for a second. So the story really begins in the early 1960s. The United States' purchasing habits had, ch had drastically changed since the end of World War II, and the baby boomers have come to age. 
come of age. Wow. Uh, a lot of disposable income had become available and people were looking to purchase some pretty nice things. This meant in terms of automobiles, the American public wanted their cars sleeker, sexier, sportier, and all around reliable. They wanted sports cars, something that Ford was not. But this was not lost on some of the execs over at the Ford Motor Company. Now in 1962, Ford was coming out of a major sales slide thanks to products like the Esdell and the growing popularity of rival products from Chrysler and GM. It was a different time and the market was getting crowded. Choices were plenty for the American buyer. I mean, honestly, I don't know at that time. I mean, Matt, put yourself in the in the early '60s. Like, what would you be driving around there? I don't know. Like uh, probably a, a, a Chevy or Ford or Cadillac if you can afford them. Um, you know, yeah, but then they also that's kind of when they uh, right around the time they they released the Mustang as well. Which uh, oddly enough, Chloe's um, um, like grandmother designed the interior of it. Or, wow, really? Or one of the two, yeah. So like they they their whole family still gets. Ford discounts because it was just such an iconic car. And- yeah. I mean, it was shown in the movie too. Like the, you yeah. know, it's the scene where uh, the sun was running up and, and he was touching the paint and Leo BB came out and he was like, please don't put your hand on the paint. Yeah, yeah, exactly. exactly. Yeah, that, that's the I'd say. Something very notable to understand um, is Ford was, was kind of freaking out. So they, they weren't, you know, hitting the numbers they wanted to, to hit. There wasn't, seemed to, to not be a lot of innovation going on. Um, so Henry Ford, the the second, who, you know, obviously is Henry Ford's son. Mm-hmm. You can tell that he... Grandson, he, grandson. Oh, grandson, sorry. You can tell that that he's got this sort of resentment that he doesn't want to be the Ford that kind of, you know, tanks the company, right? Because his grandfather, Henry Ford, invented the, the assembly line, revolutionized not only the automobile industry, but just... The manufacturing industry yeah. as a whole and he felt like you could tell that he was like kind of embarrassed and he was gonna do anything he could to to not fail and not be like the the bad four because it, it's ironic because they used to say like the first generation builds something the second one runs it and the third one kind of ruins it so he's literally like the third generation and afraid of that you know potentially <coughs> any the wrong decision could could ruin the company um, we all know that the company still thrives today. So he was able to make the right decisions. And uh, that's kind of where the story comes from. Really? Ford's still around? I, I don't think I've ever heard of them, you know, except yeah. for this movie. Uh, but yes, with Henry Ford that we're talking about here uh, and his uh, his need to feel like he's got to prove something, you know, he was looking to turn the tide. Uh, and his top executives, including Lee Iacocca, played by the brilliant John Barenthal, as we were talking about in the movie or just a minute ago, uh, convinced him that the answer was indeed a sports car. Uh, I, I really like that scene in the film, too. I, I loved uh, I, I loved the presentation and kind of like that, that tension of there of like it, it felt like at any moment it could have just like lost Henry Ford's attention. And if it wasn't for Lee Iacocca's. Uh, determinants and and will to to get that across like maybe this would have never happened you know so yeah, I, yeah. I, I kind I kind of like that that whole vibe of uh, of the, the executive who's working their ass off to to fucking get something across like Lee Iacocca I mean I heard that name I've heard that name even before this movie obviously and yeah such, exactly, such a famous exactly. name um, he was he was like behind the Ford Mustang in the in the in the Pinto car the the Ford Pinto which is another oh, boy. classic yeah. American shit beast um, but. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, RIP, honestly, he died um, 
just over a year ago, July, July 7th. Yeah, he did. I was reading that. He died of, I, he died of uh, cancer, I believe, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, but I'm probably wrong. I don't know, but he died of, um, but yes, uh, uh, he convinced him the answer was a, a sports car. Uh, the problem here was that Ford didn't have a sports car in its portfolio at the time. Uh, and then also a side note here, something in the film that was meant to be in the introduction of the iconic uh, Mustang, it was still a couple years away of production from production at this point in time. So it was decided that the speediest way to bring a vehicle to market would be to acquire one. Now, this is the idea. This is where the idea to purchase the Ferrari was born. Now, Ferrari at this time was primarily a race car company that sold street legal cars only to fund its track track exploits. This led Ford to head to Italy to meet Enzo Ferrari and deal with months of negotiations in a deal that would eventually pay off Enzo millions for his company and all of his assets. Now, interesting thing that I looked up and and was curious about, uh, Lee Iacocca was actually never there. Uh, he was not part of this deal. He actually didn't even show up and talk to Enzo Ferrari. So uh, that part of the film is actually inaccurate. Uh, and I also, you know, it shows it as it being like, I feel like they they made it look like it was like over the course of a day. Like they mm-hmm. made it look like, you know, that guy was there taking photos and then he went and showed them to Fiat and then Fiat got involved. And, uh, and you know, it made it look like that was a, a deal that was acquired overnight. Uh, but that's actually not true. Now, Enzo Ferrari, who is a former racer himself, was reportedly eager to put the to put together a deal with Ford, which would take the burden away of running the day-to-day of his company. However, at the 11th hour, Ferrari backed out of the contract after seeing that Ford would control the budget and control the decisions for the Ferrari racing team. Due to that, Enzo was unwilling to give up control of that. He told Ford's execs that he would never sell under these terms. Nor would he sell to a company that builds ugly cars in an ugly factory. It is also rumored and shown in the film that uh, he ins- added insult to injury by saying he is not his grandfather, Henry Ford II, which, as you were just noting a minute ago, can be pretty hurtful of your fucking pride if you're the third generation and you're trying to keep your company alive. Yeah. That is. Uh, but to add even more insult to injury, Enzo then turned around and sold a majority stake in Ferrari to fellow Italian maker Fiat. Now, it's speculated by some Ford execs that Enzo was never serious about selling to Ford at all, but it had only negotiated with the company in order to pressure Fiat to come up in price. And probably it worked. Yep, definitely. Uh, and Mine, I mean, probably just wanted to keep it like an in house Italian company. Yeah, I mean, it's probably that pride of, like, fuck the Americans, you know? Uh, yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, this is not too long after World War II. There's 20 so years after there, World there War II. There might be some sort of um, resentment towards Americans from Italians. If, a lot of, you know, it's honestly surprising how, how many people don't realize that um, Italy was actually uh, in the, the Axis power side with Germany um, and, and Japan. So, um, You mean yeah. people have never heard of Benito Mussolini? Yeah, basically, it's uh, it, it it will shock you, but it's kind of an interesting point to make in the movie. Uh, I think you know, John Barenthal says, or one of the execs, he's like, he's like, you know, who cares about them? Like, we make more cars in one day than they make in one year. All Ferraris are like handmade, uh, handcrafted, where Ford was much more um, numbers based production with the assembly lines. Yeah, I, you know, I really wish I knew like what the car sales. I'm sure Ford is triple 
quadruple what Ferrari sells in a year. It's just Ferraris are what? How much is a Ferrari now to buy street legal? Uh, a, a new one, a new Ferrari, you're probably looking at about 180 on the cheap side on up to probably quarter million, half a million for the right one. I know that the, the Enzo, um, the, the, they came out with the Enzo, I want to say maybe around like 2000, five-ish sometime in somewhere give or take a few years in there and that was like the 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 namesake to enzo ferrari so it was a very special car uh, and those were going for about a million but i think you can go pick up like a um like a ferrari la ferrari or california for i think 180 200 like the 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 ferrari 458s are about a quarter million uh boss my company just recently bought one um yeah you know pretty you, shop, uh, pretty you shopping Jed? you shopping for one uh, I would love to buy a used Testarossa. I just, I just love the the Testarossa, the classic '90s, uh, late '80s, '90s feel. Um, you know, I like, dude. I've honestly, I've talked to a buddy about seriously either buying a used Ferrari or Lamborghini and just renting it out on Toro, and just making extra money on the side. You can rent them out for you know, yeah. five hundred to a thousand a day, and if your car payment, you know, is depending on how much you pay, you know. Yeah, but oh, I guess actually, you live close enough to Miami where that. Oh, yeah. I mean, they're all like, it's crazy. Like, it doesn't matter. West Palm, Fort Lauderdale, Miami. Like, bro, I, you, you don't even turn a head when you see a Ferrari Lamborghini anymore. Like, growing no, up in Kentucky, like, you see, like, a Bentley and you're like, oh, my God, like, your head's like, you're breaking your neck to see it. Or you yeah, see a Ferrari true. or, God, like, a Lambo. Like, some parts of the country are just super rare to see them. Some people will never even see them. Down here, it's just like they pull up to you like it's nothing. It's like, it's as common as seeing a Mercedes, man. Yeah, no, you're right. It's the same thing here too in LA. Like, it's so funny because like you'll drive like if I ever drive up in the Hollywood Hills or whatever, or like around Beverly Hills, you'll just see Bentleys uh, parked on the street like it's like it's a a Honda, and it's yeah, just so yeah, funny. Yeah. Like someone parking their Bentley on the side of the street in like Koreatown or the Hollywood Hills is just like what? <laughs> like, why would you do yeah. that? Do that, yeah, that yeah. Um. But yes, anyway, back to this. Uh, now, this really infuriated uh, Henry Ford II. Like, he was absolutely pissed, and this ignited one of the most famous rivalries in motorsports histories. This, and I mean all of it, infuriated Henry IV II, which ignited one of the most famous rivalries in motorsports history. Henry Ford II would build a race car that would beat Ferrari in the infamous 24 Hours of Le Mans. Le Mans? Am I saying it right? Le Mans? Le Mans? Le Mans? That's how we say it in America, baby. Le Mans. I know that you know we, we were going back and forth before the episode. I, I, I do believe that you are correct that they say in its... Le Mans. In its, in its official colloquial tongue of <laughs> French, it's Le Mans. But Le everyone Mans. else just calls it Le Mans. Le Mans. You know. yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm pretty sure that Damon said it, Le Mans. In the fucking movie as well. Everyone in the movie says Le Mans because in in America we say Le Mans. We don't do you know we we're so culturally insensitive we don't even understand other accents or colloquialisms of, of other languages. So we say it how we would spell it, and it looks like Le Mans, but you know that's what we're going to refer to because that's what they do refer uh, in in America. So you know still to this day Le Mans, baby, let's get it Le Mans. Okay, but a month later, after this was initiated and it was on. A high-performance and special models operations unit was formed with the mission to design and build a racing GT car that will have the potential to compete successfully in major road races such as Sebring and Le Mans. Now, this high-performance team included the likes of Ford's 
Roy Lunn, who I think is who you were just talking about at the beginning, uh, who was in Sons of Anarchy. Uh, he is uh, considered the grandfather of the GT40, along with no, Carol. No, no, no. It's, uh, it's the, the, like the, the, the pit crew boss uh, of, of Ford. Right. The guy with the mustache and the sleek back hair? Correct. Yeah, that's Roy Lunn. So Roy Lunn, that's that's who played Roy Lunn. And Roy Lunn is like, like in the movie, from what I was reading in my research, like Roy Lunn should have had a bigger role. But I think due to uh, the time constraints and like the flow of the movie, they made it seem more like it was Carol and Ken Miles who were kind of like leading the charge on this. But Roy Lunn was the was the head of the engineering team. Uh, and he really designed the GT40. He is considered the grandfather of the GT40, and he's considered like gotcha. Yeah, yes. that, that actually that, that makes a lot of sense because it was basically like Ford's team with Shelby and Ken Miles, like kind of you know interjecting and leading them. Yeah, and like the movie made it seem like Carol Shelby didn't join until like the year before. Uh, you know, the like I think it was like '65, like the year before the Le Mans race that uh, Ken Miles drove, and and all of this is based around. Um, but Carroll Shelby had actually was actually on this in 1963. Uh, he was a part of this, uh, and he was uh, along with a few other Ford officials. Now, before we get into this, I, I really want to briefly cover Carroll Shelby, uh, who he was, and the legendary fucking status that this guy has uh, in the racing world. And I mean. And yeah, he's a legend. Before you do that, though, it was Ray McKinnon's the actor, um, and uh, it's not Roy Lunn. Uh, so uh, I'm not crazy. I promise you. <laughs> I'm glad. I'm glad you proved yourself wrong there. I'm sorry for uh, correcting you. you uh, proved, I proved myself right there. You yeah, proved yourself proved right. I was wrong. Pat's on. Pat's on my own back. I'm proud of you, bud. Happy yo, birthday. Yo, Happy birthday, Phil, Phil Remington. That's my. That's my birthday present to you. You can be well, right. All right, let's get into Carol Shelby, the fucking American legend, baby. Well, first off, Carol Shelby is a World War II flight instructor, turned chicken farmer, turned race car driver, turned builder of legendary automobiles. He was known for his big ideas and being a man without much much patience for details. Now, when he was still a chicken farmer in the early 50s, he started racing, winning races in the southwestern states of the U.S., in 1954, he began racing for Aston Martin team, winning the Le Mans himself, and he's one of the only Americans to ever do such. Unfortunately, and it was shown in the film, heart troubles forced Shelby to stop racing. He decided to put his mind elsewhere in the racing world. Oh, sorry, let me go back. Jesus. He decided to put his mind elsewhere in the racing world by building them. In 1962, he founded Shelby American an independent sports car manufacturer which began importing English AC coupes and retrofitting them with powerful Ford engines, thus dubbing an iconic vehicle the Shelby Cobra and many others. What? I should have named those, but I didn't. Um, Now, back to the team here. Uh, Back in 1963, their job was to identify a team that could build the cars. They chose Eric Broadley, John Wire, Wire, who had won the Le Mans, and Carroll Shelby driving for Aston Martin, uh, and this led them with left them with just ten months to c- build a car, complete it before the nineteen sixty four race season. So they only had ten months to fucking build a car. Yeah, it's crazy, and and, and something that's very noticeable, or sorry, not <laughs> notable rather, um, is that 
the Le Mans 24 hours is just that. It's 24 hours of racing. So a lot of times, like, drivers, drivers switch out. They do shifts, basically. But the, the difficulty is here, of here is not just making a car that can just go, you know, who can make the fastest vehicle on a drag race or a straight line, right? This is through, like, a, a small French town. So there's, there's turns. It's, it's winding. This is not like NASCAR. And you're going for 24 hours. So to be able to create a high-performance sports car, race car, that can maintain peak levels of performance for 24 hours without or at least with reducing the amount of mechanical, electrical parts issues you have going that fast with an engine revving nonstop, basically 6,000, 7,000 RPMs, it's a tough thing to do. Cars start to fall apart when they're being pushed to their limits for that long. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And and that's well shown in the film, too. Uh, at the, I really like the way that they push that out with the 7,000 RPMs uh, and how it's just a car is not meant to be pushed there. But once you get there to that limit, there's there's a moment of, of levity and peace. And you're just one where it, you know, you are one with the machine, basically. Uh, yeah. It's cool. And you need a driver that knows how to handle it. Pure enough driver that that is not only qualified and win races and is a good driver from like tactics and actually driving, but also someone who thoroughly understands the vehicle, can sense everything that's going on in the vehicle to know when, you know, to ease off and, and, and all that good stuff. Yes, and I think Ken Miles was that answer, along with Bruce McLaren and uh, several others. Uh, but that leads us into the 1964 season. Um, and that would turn out to be a tough, 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 tough year for Ford. Uh, now, frustrations with the Ford's program, being that there was only 10 months to perfect a race car, uh, it's really hard to do. The 1964 season was a bit of a bust in terms of racing, but really a success for speed. And I think this is where Mangold and the writers of this film kind of take out that that whole bit of Carol Shelby dealing with the 65 race season and then being like, hey, we built this car in, in 90 days, you know, uh, but now Ferrari knows we're fast enough to beat them. Like this kind of all meshes together. And when I was doing my research, I was like, oh, cool. I kind of see how they like, they were like, no, like, like let's make this, just feel like a consistent storyline, but like we'll have Ken Miles involved with this, the whole process. So like they made it feel like they had 90 days to complete this whole thing versus 10 months and so on and so on. But I thought it was cool. Um, now in 10 months, Ford had built its first GT 40 and it had tremendous speeds. However, the aerodynamics needed to work and it was difficult to control at high speeds. The team quickly fixed these issues and was ready for racing as best as it could be for the 64 race season. So disappointments were soon to follow for the Ford team with the suspension letting loose in Nuremberg. And while they led a portion of the race at Le Mans, the gearboxes gave out under the strain of the speed of the Ford only enough to make it through 12 of the required 24 hours of the race. And this, uh, this kind of just, I, you know, I feel like that was a piece taken from this and then it was put into the film where you're seeing bale uh sitting there and he wasn't allowed to race in the 65 race uh because of 
his temper and, and him being him and then for not wanting him to uh, uh, him sitting in the uh, uh, hangar, fixing the car in all hours of the night, listening to this race and, the, and him saying the gearboxes were fucked up. I think it was yeah, he, he kind of he knew kind of he knew the car so well. Right. Yeah, so exactly. Kind of tell like if you weren't running a particular way that it, it was bound to uh, to break down. Um, and, you know, kind of just, just piggybacking, like, I don't know, like, how true, like, how true is, say, like, Leo BB's actions towards Ken Ma. Yeah, no, that's, the, yeah. The I actually want to cover this next movie. episode, too. I want to look, I want to look at Leo BB because uh, from what the very small amount of research I did on him, apparently he is a little bit uh, misinterpreted in this film. Uh, apparently he's not, like, as bad of a guy as he's made out to be. Uh, he's more of just a uh, marketer and a PR guy. And he's like, he, you know, he never hated Ken Miles. There was never this animosity between Ford and Ken Miles uh, to the extent of what they show in this film. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, I think that Leo Beebe gets kind of a bad rap in this movie. Apparently he's, he's an excellent marketer. Um, but, you know, this was well, plus- also notable that like these marketers were kind of tasked up and heading the engineering of a, of a race car you know yeah exactly something that they like didn't yeah exactly like it's pretty advantageous to do this i mean like this is like the way i was looking at them which is exactly what they were they were admin dude they like this was this was mad men a decade later you know like after yeah, yeah. 50 like it but it's very much gave out that vibe I, I loved it um now look this plus a disastrous race in december left the program in shambles and the decision was made to take the program back stateside with Carol Shelby given operational control and Roy Lunn engineering control. So that ends our, our 64 season and puts us into the 1965 season. I want to note that Ken Miles has been working for Carol Shelby's company, Shelby American, since 1963 as the chief test driver. However, it wasn't until 1965 that he began working closely with Shelby and the team on the GT40 and the plot that we all come to know in the film. Now, Ken Miles, briefly on him, he is from Sutton Coldfield, England. He became an engineer at, at a manufacturing company as a teenager before joining the British Army at the start of World War II. After the war, Miles began racing. Sorry, Do they call that the, the Royal Army. Sure, or the British Army. <laughs> Either or. For the Queen. For the Queen. I bet your kid Miles is like fuck the queen. Who does living in America? <laughs> now, uh, after the war, he began racing, eventually racking up an impressive record. He joined Shelby's team not only to race cars but engineer them. Earlier in the year, he had finished second at the Twelve Hours of Sebring at Le Mans in 1965. He shared a Ford GT. He shared a Ford GT MK2 with Bruce McLaren at the 24 hours of the Le Mans, but only had to stop early due to a gearbox trouble. Oh, wow. There we go. Maybe that was the gearbox trouble that they were going off of. There's a lot of gearbox trouble that they have in cars. Yeah, that, that was one of the major issues that they had identified in the vehicle. Yeah, so, I mean, I, I think the the whole uh, thing that you see in the film, the where they were trying to figure out the aerodynamics. Can you hear that? Did you hear that? Yep. That was... Solo, or the helicopter. Um, sorry, the 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 point where they put on the, uh, the tape and this and the string, the cotton string, 
that is apparently a real thing that happened. Yeah, they they do that with cars nowadays. With like they'll 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 put them in a wind tunnel and they'll throw smoke and like colored smoke yeah. into the wind tunnel so you can see the aerodynamics of the car. Because when cars are going this fast, um, like that's why you know regular civilian cars can't go that fast because they're not aerodynamically stable at high speed. You get a lot of lift if you don't have a lot of um, drag pushing. I think it's drag. Uh, no, I mean, we're, we're going to, yeah, I, uh, there's probably different types of drag, but yeah, th- I mean, this is why like, you know, like spoilers and, and body kits come into play because it helps with the, the aerodynamics. But when you're going, you know, 200 miles per hour, you know, even if you have a little bit of lift, it could literally just flip your car upside down. I've seen it happen in, in these high end, you know, super car races where I've seen cars literally just like take off like a paper airplane and just flip upside down. You know, it's, it's crazy. So there's a lot that goes into engineering these vehicles. It's not nearly as easy as it just sounds like, oh, we're going to build a race car. No, if it was as easy as everyone said they could, they could do it, everybody would be doing it, as my father would say. So, you know, hats off to all these American automakers. Hats, hats off, fellas. Hats off, and, fellas. And, and ladies. Oh, excuse me. And ladies. And unidentified, non-binary people. It's 2020. we got to be all-inclusive. And honestly, aliens. I, I bet you aliens had something to do with building these cars, too. Shredding. Aliens shred Mustangs, dude. <laughs> like, literally, I bet that is what all the fuss was. Like, people came, like, aliens came from another planet just to get our 65 Mustangs and take them back to their home planets. You know it. Uh, but look, this was shown in the film differently. As I was saying earlier, he was not there at 65 at all. Um, as I said, he was in the hangar late working on the GT40 listening to the race. Uh, but that's where we're going to stop off here this time and, and pick up for part two next week where Mr. Jay Kington will be covering um, 1966 season, the Le Mans race, the controversial end, and after and Le Mans. Maybe. What's and that? Woods. And Woodstock. And Woods. And we're going to be doing this all while on LSD. And just Charles for Manson. Yeah, well, I mean, I could go without him, but sure. Yeah, I'm just gonna do a whole recap of the late '60s for everyone. So, did I ever oh, tell you? Strap on your boots, light up a cigarette, go tread through <laughs> the jungles of Vietnam with us. Well, guys, thank you for tuning in. I appreciate it. Uh, I'm EJ Gullet, and uh, don't do drugs. I'm Ron Burgundy. Actually, do drugs, but you know, doing them responsibly. Do the drugs responsibly, children. Uh, Yeah, part one of Ford vs. Ferrari, baby. Part two coming at you. Thank you for listening to Based on Real Events. I know the acronym is BORE. We aim to excite. Yeah. Yeah, I'm trying to be exciting. But I really hate it. Yeah, I don't know if I'm too excited. I'm still kind of... It's fine. I'm trying to... (laughs) Hey, guys. Hey. Hey. All right, boy friends. Hey, boy. Thank you, Matter. Matter.